Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, uh, this is the second sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. Uh, and tonight's text that we'll be studying is James chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 8. Now, as uh, we began our study of James last Sunday, uh, we reviewed the reason why we should study the scriptures at all. And we took 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 through 17, as our initial guide. Uh, The first thing I should expect is that the study of Scripture will stabilize and encourage me, that I may also gain conviction by the Spirit through its study that something is not right in my life, or that I need correction to my thinking and uh, my living, which will conform me more to the image of my Savior so that I should expect equipping in order to serve the Lord Jesus more faithfully and more effectively. And the next in our review, we reminded ourselves that we want to have a balanced diet, a balanced scriptural diet. We've studied the beginning of Genesis. We've done Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've done a series on Isaiah uh, through Advent and beyond. We've doing the wisdom books in our life groups, and now we're looking at James, that early epistle in the New Testament. All of this guarantees a balanced spiritual diet. The third reason we reviewed was how eager we should be to study James, because we realize that uh, like every New Testament writer, indeed Old Testament writer too, they were so uniquely crafted, and his letter was preserved by God's providence so that you and I cannot receive all that I can receive from God without the addition of the letter of James. And then last week we reviewed the historical evidence to confirm that the James of our letter is uh, the younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Uh, We saw how the evidence in the Acts of the Apostles in the extra-biblical writers, the early church fathers, underlined the facts that he was known for a life of prayer for himself and his fellow believers. He was known for peacemaking among them and for a dedicated pursuit of holiness, or what is also called personal righteousness, always immersed in the wonder of the grace of God towards him. And all of these elements, as we will discover, we find in this letter. We also learned from the evidence of the New Testament that he was one of the early leaders of the church in Jerusalem, that he was converted in a post-resurrection encounter with his Savior. We even learned how he died, in an eerily similar way to Jesus, a secret arrest, trial before the Sanhedrin, and then execution by stoning, outside the walls of Jerusalem in A.D. 62. We then examine the context of his readers who first received the letter, 
because James calls them the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Well, by cross-checking the date of its composition and the elements of James's life, we determine that these were Jewish believers who had become refugees during the early persecutions of the church, triggered by the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8 and that of Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. They had fled Jerusalem and its surrounding area and joined the larger Jewish settlements in other cities of the eastern Mediterranean, those that had fled Judea in the previous centuries of political unrest and war. As refugees, we noted the grim fact that all refugees know, and that is namely this, that the networks that supported them, the family they knew, they left behind and were lost to them. But we notice an odd thing that James does not write as we might in such a situation. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear of of the terrible time you've had and the suffering you've had in this latest crackdown. Instead, he writes this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, how in the world could James connect trials, suffering, difficulties, with joy? Well, the link, my dear friends, is wisdom. And that's the subject that he gives his attention to in these verses, verses 5 to 8. In a way, he answers three questions. First, he defines what wisdom is. Next, he tells us how one gets this wisdom. And third, he answers the question, what hinders you from gaining this wisdom? So let's do the first. What does James mean? By wisdom. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think after our years of study of the scriptures, we do know the difference now between knowledge and wisdom. We can have a lot of knowledge, a lot of information. We can have a lot of letters after our name and college degree or graduate degree, but we may still lack wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge put into practice. It's not just knowing, but knowing how, how to make joy out of suffering. A believing Christian grows in wisdom. In other words, a believing Christian grows in their understanding of this great biblical principle, that God uses trial in my life to accomplish his purposes. But, and it is an important but, I will not know God's purposes. Now, I think all of us, when our life struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil is done, and we are in the presence of God in glory, we will all have this question, or perhaps many questions, like, Father, why did this or that happen to me in my earthly life? Why? 
It will not be until then, when all tears are wiped away, that we will know God's purposes fully. As a pilgrim people now, we trust in the Lord that we will indeed reach that destination. But we do not know all the difficulties which lie ahead of us that we indeed are enduring right now. We trust our Heavenly Father. Even where we do not understand at all, we trust His ways. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts, as the prophet Isaiah writes. In a similar way, if we think about this for a moment, you know, we really do not understand fully how a gracious God would save me by coming in flesh, living the life I should have lived, dying the death I should die, in order to gain the blessing that was intended for him. So also, I'm not going to understand fully God's purposes as he sees them. So I trust in him, because he gave his son to take my place, to shoulder the burden of my sin, to receive the punishment I deserved for my disobedience. So I look to the cross, I see the trust that is required of me there, because I know after having done so much, he will never let me go. Wisdom is understanding that what God does in my life is for his purpose. But how does one get this wisdom? How does one get it? Well, it's there in verse 6, isn't it? But let him ask in faith. So the answer is simple. If you have a lack of it, you confess it, and, and you ask God for it. But notice uh, the condition. It's received by faith. It is not through knowledge of what is going on in my life, but a faith that trusts in the Lord. No matter how hard I try to work toward perfection, I'm not going to understand everything. So I must throw myself upon the generosity of God he's already demonstrated, to trust in his character, demonstrated the character of a heavenly father. But how do I gain the knowledge of him so that my faith in him remains stabilized in this way? It's from the study of scripture, of God's word, and its application to my life. There's a second condition in what James writes in verse 5. God, who gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, the other part, faith being one condition, now a second, it involves a special way to think about God. You see, there's this underlying image from our earthly experience here that may hinder us from asking for wisdom. Do you see it there? It's a contrast with our earthly fathers. Earthly fathers are frail. Even the most patient can lose patience. 
Every father wants to give those things without condition that our children ask of us. But the time that one child comes to you for the 197th time and you just have had enough. So an earthly father most likely reacts in frustration or anger. He's explained and explained or delayed for many good reasons, but the child does not know or does not care about that. So the earthly father reveals to them that there are limits and the child will stop asking. They learn the hard way that there's a line and that they should not cross it. But God, you see, this is James's point, but God, God who gives generously to all without reproach, God has a perfect singleness of heart. It is his single, undivided intent to give us those gifts we need to please him without hesitation, without reproach. So when we come to him to ask for wisdom, there is no need of hesitancy or shame because he will not belittle us. And the Apostle James insists it will be given to the one asking. What will be given? Does God promise to give us the outline of our lives if we ask? To give us the complete clarity on every decision we might need to make? No, not those sorts of details, but wisdom. In other words, the ability to discern how he would have us live. But what if you're the type of person, when things are going well, you've been enjoying life, it's okay, and you go, "Uh uh-oh, something must go wrong soon. What do we do to prevent such thinking, such anxiousness? The Christian life is not like the old child's rhyme. As little one plucks the daisy petal, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. No. The solution is what a much older generation called eyeing God. The, how clear is my eye of faith that I may see God's character clearly so that I know that all things work together for good. This was eyeing God to understand how I should live. This is that wisdom is the result. We will receive the insight and understanding we need to endure our trials when we ask God, whom our spiritual eyes can see clearly, gives generously and without hesitation. But if we cut ourselves off from the scriptures, we cut ourselves off from those things he has given as his gifts to sustain us and stabilize us, our spiritual eyesight will remain dim and short-sighted. And we just won't know how he would have us live. And that's where he goes next, isn't it? What would hinder me 
from having such wisdom. In the second half of 6 through 8. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh, Have you noticed something odd about what James does here? Notice how he does not write that we should think that the opposite of wisdom is what? Foolishness. Wisdom, foolishness. It's not that at all. What hinders James right here is doubt. Now that's not ever questioning what God is doing, as if your questioning would reveal that your faith would perhaps be null and void. We know from the Psalms that that sort of question, God, what are you doing, are commonplace. So what does James mean here? Well, it's in the context he's just explained, the character of God, generous without hesitation. You see how he's pointing there? That we should not doubt God's character, the one who gives unflinchingly. To doubt his character also implies that we're unwilling to trust God with our life. In other words, uh, I'll keep control, thank you very much. Or to doubt his character, i.e. not trust that he is who he claims to be. This principle is so important that James continues here in his explanation. He gets under the hood to have a closer look at this dynamic of distrust and doubt. And like every committed believer, where does he go? He goes to the scriptures. He turns to a familiar Old Testament image that of the sea and its inconstant surface. To distrust God's character is to be like a wave of the sea. Now, this is not the rush of large waves crashing dramatically in a storm. Rather, James is focused, as the Old Testament is, on the nature of the sea. It is its inconstancy. In other words, even with a slight breath of breeze, the surface of the sea moves. It's always moving. It has a constant shifting pattern on the surface. Therefore, by nature, the sea is unstable, never having the same shape from moment to moment, second to second. Now this image becomes the perfect description in the Old Testament of the person who oscillates between faith and doubt and faith and doubt. And so when it's applied in the New Testament, he or she is the one who is unwilling to trust Christ once for all and to stay the course in loyalty to him. They will when times are good, but not when times are bad. They will when things are going well. They won't when things are not. You see? What's the consequence, James says? 
that person must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, don't be thrown by the masculine pronoun here, he. Actually, the way James uses it in the original, he has both men and women involved here. Those who cannot make up their mind. Irresolution, where moral choices are concerned. To stay adrift instead. To be flexible, we might say. Be careful. Ever hear that? I'm just trying to be flexible. You're one hair's breadth away from that Old Testament image of the inconstant sea tossed here and there. And so this person shows an attitude that does not harmonize with God's attitude. Now, what is that? Well, we've heard it already. It's his singleness of purpose, his commitment to unhindered generosity. There is no double-mindedness, instability in the nature of our Heavenly Father. Another way to understand what James means is how some older translations have double-souled for double-mind here. In other words, it's not just about a lack of knowledge, but it goes deeper to a matter of the heart and of the will. I think that actually makes more sense, really, because you can start to see then how James is alluding to the teaching of the Lord Jesus we find in the Gospels. No one can serve two masters. Isn't that what he taught? The soul divided between faith and the world, God and mammon. We could go still further. We can see how the character of God's singularity, his singleness of purpose, is reflected in the character of the believer. Both Jesus and James are drawing on the Torah here, the Law of Moses, specifically the Shema of Deuteronomy. Remember it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now here's the singleness of purpose. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now didn't our Savior say that this is the first and greatest commandment? To love God with what? An undivided heart. You see? The singleness of heart brings singleness of purpose. The born again are transformed as God's character becomes their character through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be divided in your soul is more like saying, well, I have aspirations for God, but I do not want to be under God. I want to hold on to keep control. The consequences might be difficult. What's the result? The person is restless, never satisfied. In other words, like the world itself. Now, we all must take note of this here because, you know, as believing Christians, we can do many things. 
You can attend worship regularly, attend study groups, listen to an online speaker, give our time in good works, be ready as an apologist with our friends and family. But still, in our heart, in our soul, we can have those little areas where we quietly refuse to let God interfere in that part of my daily life, in that particular goal, with that particular relationship. And this condition, which in the end is hypocrisy, isn't it? Remains until spiritual eye surgery is applied. And the Christian looks to God's character, eyeing God, focused on the amazing and wonderful generosity of God. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Isn't that how the hymn goes? All other ground is sinking sand. How can I be sure God remains wise and trusted? Because he gave his son to the darkness of the cross. Your heavenly father will never forsake you because your savior was forsaken in your place. Your heavenly father will never respond grudgingly to you because he turned his back on his son and your savior instead of you. This is where the grounding of the wisdom of God is for you the believer at the cross who knows his Savior is risen and present and we, by union with him, are made whole, all because of the singular purpose of God. Indeed, he will do all things well in my life. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church ancient truth, real people, new life.